electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Hey, it's Kramer. My mission is simple, to make you money. Man Money is away today. But don't worry, I've got something special for you from my friends here at CNBC. Listen in. Welcome back, new American investors. On this Fast Money special report, we are dedicating a bonus hour to help you with your trading goals. On the big show tonight, Virgin Galactic and the under-the-radar rocket stocks you should know about. A market titan calling Bitcoin better than gold. Your questions on BlackBerry, digital payment stocks, and more. Plus, of course, this. Hot stocks? Robinhood, Reddit, Citadel, and Melvin get grilled. Ever wonder what really happens to your trade? Pick it up, pick it up, pick it up. The CEO of Lordstown Motors. Hey there, I'm Melissa Lee. Jim Cramer's off tonight along for the ride this evening. Brian Kelly, Delano Sapporo, and Anthony Pompliano, a.k.a. Pomp. Let's get right to it. No game playing on the hill today. Robinhood's Tenev, Citadel's Griffin, Melvin's Plotkin, Reddit's Huffman, and of course, Roaring Kidding himself, all getting marathon grilling by house reps. In case you missed it, Kate Rooney recaps where a lot of the focus was directed. Kate. Hey, Melissa, there were some tense moments and a lot of people forgetting to unmute. Robinhood CEO, though, got by far the most airtime. And Congress really dug for any motives behind Robinhood halting those trades in January. Vlad Tenev repeatedly denied that he was on the side of the hedge funds. Robinhood Securities put the restrictions in place in an effort to meet increased regulatory deposit requirements, not to help hedge funds. We don't answer to hedge funds. We serve the millions of small investors who use our platform every day to invest. Tenev did apologize to customers calling what happened in January, quote, unacceptable. He also defended Robinhood's business model. Tenev said payment for order flow or essentially selling customer trades on the back end is the reason they can provide that service for free. Robinhood was also asked about pressure to meet capital requirements and highlighted that it could have been a much bigger issue than we thought. If uh, if there was forced liquidation, uh, at the very least, it would have resulted in a total lack of access to the markets for your constituents. Not just to the 13 securities that we restricted buying in. Right. So this would have been an enormous catastrophe for Robinhood, correct? 
and the that's correct. And and not just Robinhood, but the over 13 million customers that we serve. Finally, there were a lot of questions about Robinhood's role in making investing like gambling or like a video game. The CEO says that they don't consider what Robinhood provides to be, quote, gamification. They take investing seriously. Melissa, back to you. Kate, thank you. Kate Rooney, who's been on top of the story from the start. Of course, the Reddit community following along and at no loss for words. Steve Kovac has been parsing the comments. Steve, what they have to say. Oh, boy. Um, Reddit <laughs> itself didn't get too much attention in that hearing. But boy, it was like the Super Bowl for them in the Reddit communities, especially on Wall Street bets. A lot of praise for what we we're hearing from Roaring Kitty. Um, hilarious memes, everything you'd expect, um, especially when he came out and said he liked the stock and that he was going to hold on to it and really put forward his investment thesis and then when it came to Vlad, not so much. Uh, a lot of things I can't tell you on national television, what these Redditors were saying about him, but a lot of anger still directed at him for restricting those shares, uh, trades of GME and AMC, of course. Yeah, so there was anger directed toward him just for... So I, I guess that they, they didn't either accept his explanation of why they had to shut down, which was basically to um, stave off a, a broader market shutdown, um, and they were still angry at him? Yeah, yeah, it, it, that was not good enough. They wanted to trade as much as they wanted to trade, and the Reddit community has not given up um, on their anger against poor Vlad. Yeah, you got to wonder if they're going to stick with Reddit at this point, I mean, excuse me, Robinhood at this point, or move on to another platform. Steve, thanks so much for rounding it up for us. Um, and I appreciate you thanks. sort of censoring those comments because the language can be colorful, to say the least, on these platforms. Pomp, I'll go to you. What'd you make of this hearing? It was, it was almost like a dog and pony show. The questions were good in terms of, you know, every congressperson said, I- I'm concerned about my constituents and their ability to trade and protecting them, et cetera, et cetera. Do we get answers? I don't know if we got so many answers. It was definitely entertaining. Um, the two real issues I kind of took out of this were uh, one, you know, what are retail traders allowed to do in terms of research, communication, uh, and actually trading? And then two is what constitutes kind of market manip- manipulation and what doesn't. Uh, I think that what we really got to have a conversation about here is if we allow for Wall Street to put out research to short a stock and then announce it and then close out trades when the stock goes down, whether the allegations are true or not, right? all these things can be considered market manipulation, just like we're trying to levy that against literally kids who are sitting at home in their home who are talking on a forum. And so I think we just have to have a, a real conversation in this country about do we want the little guy to have a seat at the table or not? The American dream should be that anyone from anywhere can come to the United States and they can sit and they can participate in our financial markets and have the ability to drive returns. And so if you read kind of the Roaring Kitty um, you know, story, he was literally unemployed for two years and he was trading and he was able to actually drive a financial return. He's a good investor. And if you look at the research and the investment thesis that he laid out, it was a good thesis. And he ended up being right. And Wall Street was wrong. And what we can't do is we can't just say if you wear a suit and tie or you wear cologne, all of a sudden you get some kind of uh, right to profits that the person at home, the retail investor, doesn't have a right to. And so I think that's the question we've got to ask. We've got to really just answer that. And once we know the answer, then we can go ahead and figure out what the regulations should I think what's interesting in, in the broader discussion about the retail investor, BK, is that is this notion that the retail investor needs some sort of protection different protections from other, you know, traders or investors in the market when everybody, I mean, 
you can be taken down by a, a bad trade no matter who you are. Precisely. So uh, absolutely. I, I don't think the retail trader needs any more protection uh, than the institutional trader because there's plenty of stories. Wall Street's littered with, you know, the stories of hedge funds that have blown up, uh, that have gotten themselves in trouble. That's that's the name of the game here in investing. And I don't think you need to restrict the fact just because the uh, trader is smaller in size in terms of number of dollars doesn't mean they're any more or less sophisticated. It's kind of the same thing with qualified investors going into hedge funds. If, if somebody has three PhDs and is incredibly smart but makes $23,000 a year, they are not, aren't allowed to be into a hedge fund because they don't make enough money, even though they may be smarter than everybody who's even running the fund. So, you know, these, th these are the things that we do have to resolve. If you want democratization of the financial markets, which I think is essential for a capitalistic society, then you do need to let everybody have a seat at the table. Now, the only last thing I would ask is, Pomp brought up, you know, if you wear a suit and cologne, does this mean that Redditors don't wear cologne? And should I be shorting <laughs> cologne stocks because that's going out? If there were smell-o-vision, then maybe we, we could figure that out. Um, Delano, I will, I will go to you on this because there is that notion, there's a line of questioning about the gamification of trading. And this is sort of a, a movement that we've seen in every aspect of our lives for whatever transaction we're making online, whether it be buying a sweater to placing a grocery order. It's easy. You can do it from your phone. You press a button. You're done. Congratulations. Your order is placed. It's on its way. It's an immediate gratification. Um, is there anything wrong with that in your view? I mean, are people so, I hate to say it, dumb, but I mean, conf confetti is going to make them place a trade? Yeah, yeah, listen, I would, I would be the last person to call um, people dumb on that. But I will say what I learned was where does the burden of literacy lie? So is it with um, the institutions where people are making these trades to educate people, to make sure that they're fully aware of what's going on, the risk that's at take? Or is it with the people that are making these trades that they're fully aware? And if they are fully aware of everything that's going on, especially if it, even if it's gamified or not, and they're okay with the risks, then they can jump in that. So I think when you look at it and you look at history, other examples, I think in the previous show was brought up what happened with it was actually a McDonald's cup of coffee. Uh, what happened there? You know, we usually say that the institutions have to um, educate people, make sure they're fully aware of what they're doing, especially if it's something where it's, it seems so easy, you know, but do we allow people to understand that, okay, you're making something that's, you know, you're risking your real capital, risking real, real money. If you're aware of that, then go ahead and do so. Uh, but I think that's something that we have to be fully aware of. And I think in this situation, we've all beaten up on Robinhood, even myself, I've done that. I will say net positive. It's, it, there's, there's actually a good thing where they brought a lot of people onto markets. I know if I talk to my friends that are younger, I know if they're trading, if they're doing it on Robinhood, whether it's minorities or younger people, millennials, I know that they, if they have an account, it's on Robinhood. I think that's a positive in the sense of they brought people that generally didn't think that they had an opportunity to do these things, to invest. They thought it wasn't for them. They were brought on. But now it's when they're on the platform, what happens after these people? Are they educated? Are they learning as they go? Are they getting the proper care? And that's, I think, that's something that we all need to look at. Yeah. And does the system serve them? I um, mean, so, Anthony, I'll go to you on this question. Uh, you know, in terms of the plumbing, that's sort of the less sexy part of this whole thing. But that was certainly a big component of this congressional hearing. Are there things about the plumbing of Wall Street that you think should be looked at at the very least, if not changed, based on what we have seen? 
Yeah, I, I think that it's just naturally going to get disrupted, right? We're talking about electronic QSIP assets who get traded around on multi-day settlement times, uh, but you've basically got high-frequency traders uh, and retail traders who are acting much faster than that. And so you have kind of activity that doesn't match the system's uh, parameters. And so I think naturally what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to rip it up. We're going to have to uh, replace it with something that's improved. I think that that opportunity, though, where real disruption is going to occur is we're going to see this move into a highly automated financial system. I personally think that's going to happen on these decentralized open protocols um, that we see being built in the crypto world. But the short answer is the current system doesn't work. And, and there was a uh, it was exposed for being um, not sufficient uh, you know, during this whole debacle. But where we kind of go from here and what the new system looks like, I think that's where the opportunity is and that's where the debate is. All right. For more uh, from a congressional perspective, let's bring in Representative Ro Khanna, Silicon Valley's lawmaker in Congress. Congressman, great to have you with us. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. What did you learn from this all? Well, we didn't have sufficient answers. We don't know why it is that Robinhood didn't have proper disclosure. I mean, why couldn't they anticipate that they may have a capital requirement uh, and have gotten uh, loans or guarantees for that? Or they should have disclosed to uh, the retail investors. I also thought that uh, they should have asked more questions of the one retail investor there, uh, and there wasn't sufficient attention on the disadvantages to the retail investors. Uh, in terms of the disclosures, uh, what sorts of disclosures are you talking about? Is it just a more advanced notice before that uh, capital call came into Robinhood? Because it seemed like things spiraled out of control so quickly that they disclosed and they did what they did as quickly as they could have. So what sorts of disclosures are you talking about? Sure. Well, when people sign up on Robinhood, they don't uh, know that uh, Robinhood, if they have liquidity issues, may stop them from trading, especially when they're trying to uh, buy things. And so Robinhood either should disclose, saying uh, if you're a customer of ours, there are circumstances where we're going to halt trading and here's where we're going to do it. Uh, or what would be better is if they had, like many other financial institutions, the proper uh, arrangement so that they have access to capital to cover a situation like that. Based on what you learned today, if you did learn, um, you know, answers to, to certain questions, is there a, a pursuit of legislation at this point? I mean, it seemed like there was a lot of grandstanding, and I understand that's what, that's what Congress does uh, in terms of wanting to protect your constituents and asking the certain, quote-unquote, right questions. But ultimately, at the end of the day, what, what's the result of this? Well, several pieces of legislation. We should have these disclosure requirements that I'm talking about. We should have higher capital requirements for companies like Robinhood. We should make sure that the clearinghouses uh, have clear uh, conflict of interest standards so that they're not having a different set of rules for hedge funds. And we should have conflict of interest laws for companies like Robinhood. As you know, they provide a lot of their data to Citadel. Now, I don't think there's any evidence, and I didn't hear any evidence today that leads me to believe that there was some conspiracy between Citadel and Robinhood, but there are conflicts of interest, and those need to be better addressed, and those are all areas for regulation. Hi, sir. It's Brian Kelly. So I I'm curious, you know, the issue that we're having in big tech, and then since you're from Silicon Valley, is that you all have all these terms of services, and everybody just hits click and moves on. Right. So how would that be different if Robinhood said, oh, by the way, you know, we might shut down trading. Nobody's going to read it. <laughs> They're going to hit click and move on. So how does that solve the problem? 
Brian, you're actually, that's a very fair point. These terms of services don't mean much. And that's why I think it has to be informed consent. It has to be in simple language. It has to be in plain language. Uh, and it has to be things that users can understand. And it can't be conditional for the entire service. It can't be these 40, 50 page uh, agreements. But I agree with you that the terms of service and the type of consent for data uh, has not worked and we need to do much better. I take your point. Congressman, great to get your thoughts. We really appreciate your time. Good to hear from you. Thank you. Congressman Ro Khanna of Silicon Valley. Um, Delano, do you think that anything should actually be legislated uh, into law at this point? Most, that's a great question. And I think what we're seeing is there's a lot of people, you know, angry and upset on both sides. I think the conversation needs to be had on how we can have better transparency and better literacy for investors, especially smaller investors. You know, my firm, we serve smaller investors. Uh, and a lot of them, you know, have been trading and doing things on loan. A lot of them are newer to this. And I know from my standpoint, I started trading, you know, when I was 20. I'm 31 now. There's a lot of things I learned along the way that would have probably been better set if they were taught to me or if someone had put this into me. I know that we talked about earlier in the show if there was education in schools. I think there should be some sort of level of education that's put out there for them. As far as legislation, I would go as far as to say how that's going to be put in place. But I do think we need to have investors better educated uh, so we can understand the plumbing behind this. And now if I talk to friends, they wouldn't really know that, you know, there's two days for your stock to settle or they wouldn't know uh, payment order flow. But if we have literacy more expounded and from a place that's centralized where people can get very good information, I think that would be a really good thing for investors. Yeah. Anthony, what are your thoughts on on sort of legislating this? Because, you know, fact of the matter is, is as Vlad Tenev pointed out during his testimony, there's plenty of resources on the Robinhood site itself across the Internet for for how this all works, how the markets work, how trades work, etc. And if people choose to read it, great. But for the most part, they don't. That's their choice. That's on them, though. Yeah, I think, look, we're watching the financialization of everything, right? Really from uh, collectibles to stocks to crypto to a whole bunch of different markets. And so naturally what we're going to see is kind of the retail investor is going to continue to put money into all of these markets. Uh, it is an absolute national emergency, the lack of financial education that goes on in our schools. Um, and it's one thing that we should address on a national uh, kind of bipartisan basis. Um, but I also think that what we need to do is when we look at markets right now, we use wealth as a proxy for intelligence. And that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And so if what we can do is we can switch to an education-based system, right? If you can go in almost like an SAT in a watered-down format and say, listen, you take a test. If you understand markets, knock yourself out. Invest in whatever you want. Uh, you're educated. If we kind of move toward that educate, education model, I think that not only will we have more efficient and safer markets, but actually people will do better in the market, which is the whole point of what people are trying to accomplish with regulation. All right. Still to come. We've got many, many more trading ideas for you coming up. Uh, the new American investor, plus an explanation of that plumbing that Delano was just talking about. But first, Bond King Jeff Gunlock saying Bitcoin could be better than gold. We will explain why. Plus, they're looking to become the Tesla of pickups before Tesla and now copying Tesla's own sales playbook. Lordstown Motors CEO Steve Burns will join us in a few minutes. Fast Money's back in two. A few things I am not. I'm not a cat. I am not an institutional investor, nor am I a hedge fund. I do not have clients, and I do not provide personalized investment advice for fees or commissions. I'm just an individual whose investment in GameStop and posts on social media were based upon my own research and analysis. 
your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact. Smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. There were a series of steps that the Robinhood Securities team took. To- Reclaim all time, sir. At that exact moment, did did you have the liquidity for three billion? Five eleven a.m. At at that moment, uh, we would not have been able to post the three billion in collateral. Welcome back to this Fast Money special, the New American Investor. Bond King Jeff Gunlock suggesting Bitcoin could be better than gold. He tweeted. I'm a long-term dollar bear in gold bull, but have been neutral on both for over six months. Lots of liquid poured into a funnel creates a torrent. Bitcoin may be the stimulus asset. Doesn't look like gold is. Gold ETF, GLD has seen outflows. Gold, the performance of the GLD has been sort of range-bound for the past year. We've got two Bitcoin bulls on this panel, so I don't know what, what other answer I'm expecting. But BK, what do you think of Jeff Gunlock's comments? Uh, welcome to the party, Jeff. Now, I mean, listen, just just a real smart guy. And, and I talked to Jeff a while back about Bitcoin and he was kind of interested in it. Um, and I think what he, what you're seeing here is this institutional acceptance of Bitcoin that's been exacerbated by this divergence between Bitcoin and gold. Just a note on gold. The reason why, at least in my view, that it has been underperforming is the trade on gold was negative real interest rates. So the inflation rate minus the 10 year. So as the 10-year gets closer to 2%, which is roughly the inflation rate, that negative real rate starts to decline. And the reason why you got into gold was the the catalyst kind of disappears. Now, Bitcoin will ultimately, in my view, take on some of those macro characteristics, but it's in this period, this commodity digital gold era, where it's really just being accumulated, which is part of the thesis on Bitcoin from a long time ago, is that as this becomes a new asset class, you're going to have to have institutional investors accumulate it. And so those buyers are less concerned necessarily about the day-to-day macro and more concerned about getting an initial position on. We've got more and more institutional investors coming in. Their wallets are getting bigger, Pomp. Um, They seem like they are holders of Bitcoin, not users of Bitcoin. At what point, how does that transition happen um, from institutions simply holding uh, this asset to it being actually used as a currency? Because that seems to be the next leg of the thesis. 
Yeah, look, a currency basically has two core criteria, right? It's a store of value, it's a medium of exchange, but it's sequential. You need the store of value before you have the medium of exchange. I think Bitcoin is going through price discovery right now. Uh, it's a trillion dollar asset, give or take. Um, I think it'll overtake gold in the next five or six years. Uh, and by the end of 2020s, we're going to see a million dollar Bitcoin price. So kind of 2x gold to market cap. But that's because Bitcoin is a 100x improvement on gold as a store of value. And so once we start to get much more liquidity, there's more utility, and you get some kind of price stability, that's really where you'll start to see the currency come in. But I, I think one of the key parts that people don't give enough credit to is the community around Bitcoin, right? There is uh, a lot of the loud music and, and um, kind of the meme videos. Uh, you literally have people saying, you know, have fun staying poor to billionaires on the internet. Like there's this whole culture that I think a lot of people are basically saying like, this is no way a financial asset. But what you're starting to see is that the data is suggesting this is the best asset, right? Gunlock literally called it the stimulus asset. It's up 500 plus percent since uh, the government and central bank stepped in and started to intervene in markets. And so I think that people are just waking up to the fact that if you can set aside kind of the culture and the community and just look at the asset and the performance, what you find is this is actually serving as one of the best single stores of value in the world. And I think that it will continue to do that in the coming years. All right. Coming up on this Fast Money Special Report, the new American investor, the retail trading frenzy is Lighting up a darker side of trading. We'll explain that next. Plus, we're taking your tweets, so send us your biggest questions. We'll try and answer them back in two. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash madmoney. Just go to Indeed.com slash madmoney right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash madmoney. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Like with our long positions, our practice is to short a stock for the long term after extensive research. We also short stocks because when the markets go down, we have a duty to protect our investors' capital. None of Melvin's short positions are part of any effort to artificially depress or manipulate down with the price of the stock. Welcome back to this Fast Money special, The New American Investor. Ever wonder what exactly happens to your trade after you hit execute? Bob Pisani's been busting up some drywall to reveal the plumbing of Wall Street. Hey, Bob. Hello, Melissa. Good to see you. You know, with payment for order flow, you've got a brokerage firm like a Schwab, for example. They're receiving compensation for directing orders and they're directing those orders to market makers like Citadel and Virtu who execute the trade. Now, the trades are made internally and they're not sent to exchanges. That's key to understanding payment for order flow. The fee the brokerages get from the dealers enable them to charge these zero-dollar commissions everybody likes so much. Now, at the hearings, people like Ken Griffin at Citadel emphasized repeatedly that the key to the whole thing was simply best execution. That's the obligation to provide the best available price and price improvement if it's possible. 
Griffin emphasized the whole process was very competitive. If they don't provide the best execution, firms like Schwab will kick them out. They have to provide that. Griffin also emphasized one way they can provide price improvement, even over stock exchange prices, is because they internalize the order. They match against their own inventory. They don't have to send it out to an exchange. At an exchange, they're going to have to pay a rebate. They don't do that. They can also bid in sub-penny increments. The exchanges cannot. That's another advantage those kinds of organizations like Griffin's have. That's the key to making payment for order flow work, best execution. Hester Pierce, one of the Republican commissioners, she was on our air today, Melissa, on the SEC. She said commission-free trading was a net positive for retail investors because of the best execution requirement. So, Melissa, the key to this whole thing, obviously, is not examining payment for order flow. It's making sure there's really best execution going on. And if that happens... By and large, the system seems to work pretty well, but monitor the best execution. That's, yeah. that's the key. And actually, the number of trades, Bob, as you know, off exchange has hit a record, particularly yep. as this whole you know, retail trading boom has crescendoed in the month of January. I think it was right. a record for off, off exchange volume for retail trades. That's right. Yeah. Forty eight percent is now yeah. off exchange. And most of that is because of the increase in retail trading. It's not dark pool trading. It's retail traders. And those tr- retail trades are not reported on the exchanges. So they're reported. It's called an off exchange tape. On the so, flip- yes, it's, but it's because of the retailers. Yeah. On the flip side of things, though, Bob, for a Citadel Securities, for instance, is it valuable to them because they get to see the flow? It's data that they're oh, after. Yeah, listen. The, the, well, yes. So th- this is how they. This is what the price improvement is, yeah. is all about. Remember, if, if it's all about buying low and selling high. I mean, if somebody wants to to, to buy it, you know, if you want to, if they have to buy uh, some stock at seven hundred ninety three dollars, Tesla, for example, they want to be able to sell it in sub second later at seven ninety three oh one. But the question is, how disadvantaged is the retail investor really? doing that. Remember, used to pay $8 commissions. Is that worth a trade-off versus somebody else who's out there, another uh, giving your order flow to somebody uh, who can then try to make some money by sub-second intervals trading sub-pennies on it? I, I, if you look at the overall trade-off, that $8 commission that goes away versus what you're giving up, providing you get Best execution or price improvement. Yeah. Generally, most of the people today agree that it's a pretty good deal for the average investor. Yeah. Bob, thank you. Bob Pisani. This is really important to understand because this is actually going on with a lot of the trading platforms. It's not just Robinhood. So if you out there are angry at Robinhood and you're going to say, I'm going to switch a TD Ameritrade, you're not getting into another situation there. And and if you want to go on exchange, you might be paying higher prices. Delano, it's like, Once you let the horse out of the bar and you can't get it back in, I mean, zero dollar commissions, that's that's here to stay, I would think. Yeah, it is here to stay. And as was mentioned, you know, if you're someone that's, you know, swing trading or day trading, it's probably useful to know that if you're going against high frequency traders, um, you're probably losing that very incremental game. But again, that's something that you have to understand going in. But if you do understand that, and you're like, okay, my, my payment order flow is being routed. Um, I understand that I'm getting zero commission because of this, but I'm okay taking that risk. Net positive again. 
that the low commissions has been good for younger investors, has been good for people that have generally been barred or felt that they were barred out of this industry. Uh, but it's just good to understand and have understanding of this, of, of what's going on behind the plumbing. And I guess that's where it goes to the burden of literacy. Is it on the investors to understand this, uh, to understand the incremental exchange, or is it on the institutions to provide that uh, for the investors? Yeah. Coming up on this Fast Money Special Report, the new American investor, Lordstown Motors CEO Steve Burns will join us next as the EV maker looks to break through a sales wall. We'll break it all down when Fast Money returns. We don't consider that gamification. We know that investing is serious and we're investing in all of the educational tools and customer support to help people on their investing journey. Welcome back to this Fast Money special, The New American Investor. Following in Tesla's tire track, so to speak, electric vehicle company Lordstown Motors is seeking approval in Ohio to sell its vehicles directly to consumers. It also just announced a large order of 100,000 vehicles. Let's bring in Lordstown Motors founder, chairman and CEO Steve Burns to tell us more about this all. Steve, great to see you again. Thanks, Melissa. Thanks for having me. I want to ask you, start off with the Endurance, which is the all-electric pickup vehicle. You've started to build the beta prototypes. Are you still on track for production in September? And, and what could be sort of the, the I'm going to say roadblocks, uh, roadblocks potentially um, here bumps, to a September bumps road. <laughs> bumps in the road. Uh, well, you know, it's we're standing up a car company from scratch and to get and we're going right for mass production. So there's there's a lot, but we, um, you know, the betas are, when you build in betas, you're 97, 98% of the, the final vehicle, and uh, we're building those now, and they're on track. So we're, uh, we're on track for September. Will we see the betas? Will we see the betas actually operational? Somebody actually driving the betas, the betas not rolling down a hill, for instance, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. to know that there is a vehicle that is actually being built even if in, in beta? Yeah, we think it's really important to be, since we are a pre-revenue company and we're a public company and we don't have the normal metrics like revenue yet. So we want to we want to leave a lot of breadcrumbs for investors and customers to see. So we've we've been showing the prototype in action. We have a skateboards, kind of a, a naked chassis without the body on it. So you can really see how these hub motors work. And the, uh, and then we're going to be very transparent on the on the betas as well. Um, an automotive company normally doesn't because, of course, you're going to have you know, you're building these to test and finalize and crash into the wall. And um, of course, there'll be hiccups, but we're going to we're going to show them proudly. We're so excited to be at this point. Yeah, this is a very crowded space now, Steve. It seems like everybody and their brother wants to be in this sort of business. Um, yeah. Brothers being uh, Rivian to General Motors. Morgan Stanley recently initiated coverage of your stock with an underweight rating. This this analyst is very respected auto analyst. And I'm wondering if you have any response, because part of the underweight rating is that he expects that for many years, at least, Lord's down to be a relatively small volume manufacturer that will absorb a high amount of fixed costs and face execution risks, especially when you're going up against legacy OEMs like a GM or deep pocketed competitors like a Rivian. What would you say to those criticisms? Because they are very real. Yeah, I think that's conventional thinking. Um, we This is a billion dollar business typically to get into. And typically people are very late uh, in their projections and when a vehicle comes to market. So what makes us different is, first of all, our vehicle is very similar to a conventional pickup truck. So we didn't get too radical there. So we didn't have to reinvent the wheel. Very known, Very well known science. 
So we could focus on our dryer train, our battery pack, our software. Uh, secondly, we bought a 6 million square foot plant from GM. I think it's the most, the third most productive plant in the United States. But what's really different is we bought it completely intact. And that plant had been making up to 400,000 Chevy Cruises a year. So it's a very capable plant. We're building a giant gigafactory inside of it, our own battery pack, so we can control that cost. So we're really vertically integrated, but we don't have the normal billions. And because we're starting with a pretty well-known product, uh, if you look at a Tesla, let's say they had to start from, from scratch. A Rivian that you mentioned, I think their vehicle is from scratch, uh, like no other vehicle. When you do that, it is billions and billions and years and years. But mm-hmm. uh, we really, to be there first, we really want first mover advantage, first electric pickup truck. This is a full-size pickup truck for fleets. So we, uh, they were happy with the bed and the cab and the uh, mm-hmm. steer wheel and brakes. So we, uh, we went with all that. Yeah. And in terms of the September time frame for full production of the Endurance, Steve, do you have enough liquidity to get you to there mm-hmm. from here? Yep. Yep. We've been really maniacal about that, and uh, we're on track. Okay. Steve, hope you'll keep us posted. Good to speak with you. Absolutely. Thanks, Melissa. Steve Burns, the CEO of Lordstown Motors. Brian Kelly, I know you you didn't miss my reference there um, to Nikola in terms of having a car that actually, or vehicle that actually (laughs) works on its own without being propelled by gravity down a hill. Imagine that, not having a uh, soapbox derby car. That's just a novel business idea, having a product that works. Um, it, you know, I, I think it's interesting. You know, there, there's there is some really interesting thing that Lordstown is doing. They're keeping it simple. Uh, but I think what investors need to know, as Steve said, this is a pre-revenue company. So if you're investing in this, you are betting that they are going to hit all their metrics. And your risk is that they don't hit their metrics or that they need more capital, as you asked them about. Do they have enough money? Those are all real risks out there that investors should know about before they get into this car. It may not just be betting on an electric vehicle, but you're also betting on the execution of a company. Yeah, particularly when there are other bets in the market that you could choose to make instead, Delano. And so I ask you that question. Um, Where would you place your bet, so to speak? I like the whole industry as a whole. The electric vehicle market is obviously something for a younger investor and someone that has a higher risk profile you can take bets on. So I like Tesla. Um, I've also been invested in NEO. Um, so those are, this is the area where I like. Um, and I think, you know, with what was said by the CEO, it makes sense to, you know, take a hard look at Lawrencetown as well. Um, and these are all areas that for younger investors with a high risk profile, as was mentioned, if you understand that metrics have to be hit and if it's pre, you understand that they're pre-revenue, uh, but you can get behind going through the volatility as a, as a younger investor and someone that likes to take a look at the high growth uh, possibilities, I actually like it. All right. Coming up on this Fast Money Special Report, The New American Investor, a historic moment that is truly out of this world. What it could mean for you, The New Investor. Plus, we're taking your tweets. we got much more fast right after this. Welcome back to this Fast Money special, The New American Investor. It is time to take your tweets. So let's get right to it. I just got a question, you know, your opinion on BlackBerry. I got in around 10.50 a share uh, before the Reddit hype drove up to 30 bucks. And, you know, in my mind, I had a $15, $20 end of year price target. Um, and I watched it, you know, slowly fall back down 15. Now it's at uh, 11.32 closed out today. And, you know, since then, they have released some good really good headlines. You know, their Jarvis um, 
getting awarded best in class, uh, the new QNX being released, they've deepened existing partnerships as well as established new ones. So I'm just wondering if you think the market's just not responding to you know the positive news. Uh, is it already priced in? Good question. It's a hot stock on the Reddit boards. Uh, Brian Kelly, what do you have to say about BB? Yeah, so I would say it's probably priced in. And so now you're going to need a new catalyst out there. Um, you know, if you had a 15 to $20 target at year end, uh, you know, I would certainly be taking some off if we got to 15 or $20 again. Um, but kudos to you, because I've liked BlackBerry for a long time, actually got into it around four. But unlike you, I didn't watch it go up. I puked it out below two, I believe. Um, so you did better than me. But I would say probably need a new catalyst. All the news is priced in right now. All right. We have got time for one more question. Hey, Fast Money. This is Lamont in Nashville. My question is, I have $50,000 and I want to put it into a digital payment stock for a long-term investment, five to 10 years. Would you put 50000 in PayPal or would you put it in Square? Lamont is a high roller. <laughs> Pomp, what do you tell Lamont? <laughs> Yeah, look, I think both companies uh, obviously are doing pretty well. They're both into digital currencies, but I think Square just is continuing to prove that going after deposits and payments at the scale they're doing um, is really working for them. Uh, Jack Dorsey is probably one of the most underrated entrepreneurs in the world. He's built two multi-billion-dollar businesses. And the other thing that Square's doing that I really like is they also have a PL strategy, they're making a lot of money selling Bitcoin, uh, but they also have a treasury strategy, uh, somewhat of micro strategy of Michael Saylor. And so Square would be the uh, winner there if I was uh, looking at both those companies. All right. Now, aside from the viewer questions on stocks, it turns out that many of you in the Reddit sphere also had questions about this today. Roaring kitties, den decorating. So we did some digging as we do. We found out that his chair comes from Secret Lab Gaming. The average price, 400 bucks. His mic, HyperX Quad Cats, about 140. The cat poster in the background, 16 bucks on Amazon. Red bandana, 675 also on Amazon. So you can have the kitty's den for under $600. <laughs> Seems like, a, I don't know, Delano, you, you got a pretty nice setup back there, but you know, maybe a hanging kitty poster might be a, a nice addition. Yeah, I actually am going to look it up right now. I need that. I'm looking around. I think that would be a nice addition to my spot back here. Yeah, and a red bandana on the pomp would be good, too. Coming up on this Fast Money Special Report, the new American investor has the red-hot space stock gotten too high in the sky. We've got some answers right after this. Welcome back to the special hour of Fast Money, the new American investor. We are counting down to earnings from Virgin Galactic. The space SPAC is up more than 300 percent since it went public in 2019. Our next guest says it may have gotten ahead of itself. Let's bring in Cowan senior analyst Oliver Chen to keep us grounded on what we should expect from next week's report. Oliver, great to have you with us. Great being here, Melissa. There's great obviously being. a lot of excitement. And then there's also the Kathy Wood dynamic at ARK Invest launching an ETF that is uh, specifically designated for, for space investment. And so I'm wondering how you weigh all of that in terms of thinking about a name like Virgin. Well, the long-term opportunity is very unique. We view this as an experiential luxury play, too, in a very supply-constrained market. There'll only be about 400 seats a year. And based on our survey, Two million plus people are very interested. So uh, this is a supply constrained, highly coveted opportunity, and the seats cost two hundred fifty thousand dollars. 
That being said, the stock has lifted off, blasted off, gone to infinity in terms of being up over 180% since we launched. So just acknowledging analytically coming into next week, expectations are fairly high. And this company doesn't generate revenue yet. Um, we're looking for the back half of 2022, 2023 for revenue. And there's been test flight delays as well. So there are a lot of steps, including safety and scaling that need to happen. Uh, and we're looking forward to that. We love the new CEO from Disney, and we think there's a lot of really great R&D and technologies and partnerships with Under Armour, Rolls-Royce, and others. That makes a lot of sense for the long term, and it's very uniquely positioned. In terms of um, putting the model together, and I know that this stock is one of these stocks where, where you believe in a future vision and you invest, you put it in the top drawers. Brian Kelly likes to say you leave it alone. But at the same time, if we were to sort of crunch through those numbers, 400 seats a year, despite, you know, it could be millions of people interested in traveling to space, but the fact of the matter is they only have 400 seats. What does that mean for this company and, and where does that put the PE, even if they were able to fulfill the 400 seats? Yeah, in terms of how we're looking at it, 19 times EV to sales based on 2025, our published estimates. Um, so you really have to do some unique modeling here since there are no near-term revenues or EBITDAs. The other factor is looking for about uh, $1 billion per spaceport. Uh, but there's, you know, we're, we're still needing to see the commercial execution of the first spaceport. Uh, so as we look forward globally, um, more spaceports will unlock more inventory and more uh, travel. Um, the other thing that's happening here is high-speed point-to-point travel. So could there be business travel? Will there be a supersonic, hypersonic travel? Um, that's a valuation opportunity as well, which is different from commercial space flight. Um, and that's a nice opportunity too. But this is an early-stage investment. Um, so you're watching for all these factors and scaling and safeties first. And there's a lot of hurdles. After the test flight, there needs to be another flight where uh, mission specialists go on board to test that way. And then Sir Richard Branson. And then we'll be ready for commercial space flight. So there's many hurdles uh, that have to happen in advance. Hey, it's Brian Kelly. So I'm curious, you know, this this is one of those stocks that I do think you have to believe in the future, which sounds like you have a very long term bullish view on it. But again, it's a stock, right? So every 90 days, every quarter, we're going to get these earnings reports. So as an analyst, what do you tell institutional investors who are coming in saying, hi, I want to be in this? Do you say play this quarter by quarter or do you use weakness to load up on this thing for a five to 10 year play? Yeah, I think you really have to think about the five to 10 year play, the multi-year play in the space, the future and, and what, what we're building, the space race and the uniqueness of this asset. And also um, the tremendous global pent up demand in many countries. Quarter to quarter is going to be interesting because what we're going to be asking management is what are the parameters around scaling? Can you quantify this um, safety efforts and timing and timeline? Stepping back, uh, this company is well capitalized, 740 million in cash, about 60 million per quarter of cash burn. That's a positive fundamentally. Um, but investors really need to understand both sides of the coin, uh, which means that the financial modeling is, is several years off in terms of revenue and profit generation. So it, it's, a, it's about both pieces, but a lot of the investors who are in the stock understand these dynamics, or, or they should in terms of the risk factors. Yeah, Oliver, you know, what's interesting about this stock is is who covers it. You are a, a retail analyst covering this stock. So that's sort of the perspective that you have. This is a luxury stock 
in your view. So this is not a transportation stock. We shouldn't think of it in that way. Is that correct? This is yeah, this I, is I like LVMH. Yeah, we, you mean LVMH doing an acquisition of Belmont, experiential retail, the future of the consumer, uh, really looking for these once-in-a-lifetime experiences, joining uh, the club of having travel to space, and then what that means post-purchase and for your friends and family, um, these are all uh, big opportunities, and, and space is the ultimate dream. It's the ultimate experience, and it's a scarce opportunity um, that will transcend you know, psychological and, and opportunities. It, it will be a very special experience. So that is one way to think about it um, in terms of the future and what's happening. That being said, there's a lot of science and logistics and safety. Yeah. And integrating this together is, is quite interesting and, and creative and powerful. And bringing this capital to make this happen is, is an entrepreneurial feat. All right. Oliver, great speaking with you. Thank you so much. Oliver Chen, part of the spaceport sort of argument Pomp and just quickly, we've got like 15 seconds. Is, is you're going to bring your friends and family along? You're going to go to space, and you want your wife to come along with you <laughs> and experience some of that. So I think that's sort of interesting. Yeah, look, I think that everyone wants to go to space, and uh, we should celebrate these wins, whether it's landing on Mars or it's uh, the space travel. We need more people in STEM fields. Yep. All right. Thank you very much, Brian Kelly, Delano Sapporo, and Anthony Pompliano. That does it for us in the CNBC Fast Money Special: The New American Investor. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.